Well, please turn in your Bibles this morning back to Mark chapter 6. In the final two messages here before the much-anticipated return of Pastor Green this coming Sunday, we are going to examine the account of two kings in Mark, a bad king and a good king. And this morning, we are looking at the bad king, and Lord willing, on Tuesday, we'll look at the good king, a banquet of death and a banquet of life. Jesus states the call to discipleship in Mark chapter 8 in verses 34 through 37 in, the, in these terms. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In the account that we have before us, we have a man who is not ashamed of Christ in a sinful and adulterous generation. We also have the stark contrast to following Christ in the life of Herod and Herodias and her daughter, a picture of a tormented soul that is pursuing unhindered self-gratification. And as we prepare to delve into this passage this morning, I want to provide a little bit of historical context that I think will help us navigate what is taking place in the account that Mark gives to us. Jesus sent the apostles around Galilee to declare his kingdom. And we see that in verses 12 and 13. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the disciples are proclaiming Christ in Galilee, which is in the north part of Israel. And this is coming toward the end of Christ's ministry in Galilee. In chapter 3 and verses 1 through 6, following a number of points of controversy with the religious leaders, we find that the religious leaders are already plotting Jesus' death. We've seen in chapter 6 already that Nazareth, which also was in Galilee, was unreceptive to Christ. And now as Jesus begins to end his time in Galilee, he sends out his disciples two by two to proclaim Christ as a final call to repentance. And the message and the work of the apostles as they proclaim Christ is so effective that verse 14 says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known 
Isn't it wonderful that as the apostles did their work, people weren't saying how wonderful the apostles were. They were saying how wonderful Jesus was. Jesus' name became known as they proclaimed Christ. Galilee was at that time under the rule of Herod, Herod Antipas. Herod actually ruled over two parts of Israel. He ruled over the region of Galilee. And then if uh, you're familiar with your Bible geography, the, the Sea of Galilee is in the northern part of the kingdom. And the Jordan River runs out of that sea south down to the Dead Sea. And on the east side of the Dead Sea was a region called Perea. And this is also a region that Herod ruled. So Herod was the ruler of Perea and the ruler of Galilee. Now you ask, well, why, did, why did he rule two separate regions? How did that happen? Well, Herod's father is Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the one who ordered the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem after the birth of Jesus Christ. He was a very corrupt ruler as well, but he ruled under Rome and he ruled over the whole territory of Israel. But when he died, he divided up that uh, area into four different parts and set his sons over, uh, well, some of his sons. He had 10 wives, so you can imagine how many children he had. Some of his sons over the, the various regions and Herod Antipas, the Herod that we're seeing in this passage, uh, was the one who was given Galilee and Perea. So just to maybe help us a little bit uh, keep even the Herods straight, there's a number of Herods in our New Testament. So if you think about five generations of rulers, the first was Antipater, Antipater I, and he he made himself very useful to Rome and was the father of Herod the Great, who again ruled when Christ was born. So that's two generations, Herod Antipater and then Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas is part of this third generation of rulers, and he'll rule until A.D. 39, shortly after the crucifixion of Christ. And he is followed by the generation of Herod Agrippa I. Now this Herod is the same Herod that we find in Acts 12, who uh, martyrs James and puts Peter in prison. So we're seeing, we're seeing a, uh, a consistency in the line of Herods here. They slaughter children, uh, they slaughter preachers, and they slaughter apostles. And then in Acts 25, we're told of another Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II, and this is the fifth generation of the Herods. So Antipater is the first generation followed by Herod the Great, who is then followed by Herod Antipas under our consideration here today. And then in Acts, we find Herod Agrippa I in Acts 12 and Herod Agrippa II in Acts 25. Now, all of these rulers were at least partially Jewish or gave some indication of having converted to Judaism. 
And that's why, for instance, John is confronting Herod so directly about his unlawful marriage. It's also why in Acts 25, when Paul is giving his defense before Agrippa, he asks Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. All right, so there's a history, there's an understanding with these rulers that were under, ultimately under the Roman Empire of the Jewish law and of the Jewish customs. So that'll help us, I hope, just give us a, some, some context for what is happening here. Herod Antipas is a ruler assigned by Rome over these regions in, Gal- in Israel, Galilee and Perea. Now, you can imagine that in that kind of context, there's a lot of maneuvering and a lot of politicizing, trying to uh, retain one's grip on the territories ruled, retain control, keep the rise of zealots at bay, and also keep one in favorable status with Rome. So all of those political corruptions, if you will, are at play in the household of Herod. And that factors into uh, what is taking place here in this passage. But what we find is that as the disciples then went out and preached Christ, notice I didn't say they preached about social injustice. No, they preached Christ. And the powerful preaching of Christ, the powerful call to repentance made it to the palace and started to rattle political cages because there was a sense of personal conviction for personal sin. That's what the preaching of Christ does. It brings conviction about our sin. It confronts Every person, whether in palaces or in paupers' houses, with the reality that they have to stand before the King of Kings. They have to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the fame of Jesus, as the disciples preached and did mighty works, caused stir to catch Herod's attention. As I stated at the beginning, this passage and the one that follows presents two kings. One is a slave to self-gratification and notices anyone who might bring conviction. The other, in the feeding of the 5,000, the other king, Christ, the Son of God, is filled with selfless generosity and he notices with compassion those who are in need. You could not have a more stark contrast. One banquet at the end of this passage, one banquet leads to and ends in death. The other banquet ends in satisfaction pointing to the eternal bread of life, Jesus Christ. Jesus states in a little bit later in Mark chapter 7, in verses 21 and 23, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What we have in this passage is Herod and Herodias as representative of the unbridled expression of the evil heart. Jesus said what he did in in Mark 7 to Pharisees whose hearts were filled with the same evil, but they had whitewashed their lives with hypocritical law-keeping. And what we have to keep in mind as we look this morning at this account, what we find in the lives of Herod and Herodias, what what we see in the evil of this passage is simply the expression of the evil of every human heart in its unbridled form. Herod and Herodias had the, uh, the opportunity, if you will, to express their evil. They were rulers. They could do what they wanted without seeming repercussions. And so they did. They did. They lived lives of unbridled evil passion. But to properly understand the Scripture and the call to Christ, again, we, we can't just look at people like this and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that. We are glad that we haven't lived perhaps an unbridled, unbridled passion of the flesh. But we have to look at, our, at these accounts and say, apart from Christ, this would be me because this is my heart. This is the heart of every human being. When Christ is proclaimed, the facades crumble under the brilliance of His perfection. Our theme today for this passage is that proclaiming Christ exposes the horror of self-gratification. Proclaiming Christ exposes the horror of self-gratification. Again, notice that the passage is book-ended by the disciples of Christ going out and proclaiming Christ, proclaiming that people should repent. And then in chapter, or in verse 30, the apostles returned to Christ and told him all that they had done and taught. So everything that we see here is in that context of proclaiming Christ. Proclaiming Christ exposes the horror of self-gratification. Let's notice first this morning that preaching Christ disturbs sinners. Preaching Christ disturbs sinners. The apostles are preaching Christ. They went and proclaimed that people should repent. John the Baptist is preaching the same thing. Repent! We're told back in chapter 1, that was his message, repent. Both the apostles and John the Baptist called people to repentance and preparation for Christ, and in the apostles' case, as representatives of Christ. They were not pursuing political causes. They were pursuing, proclaiming the kingdom of God. So what we find as they're preaching, we find that preaching Christ agitates guilt-ridden consciences. Look at what happens in Herod's mind. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. 
Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. This is why these miracles or miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So as the apostles are preaching, there are, there are speculations about who might be empowering them, who is this person, this Jesus that they are proclaiming. We'll see the same speculations raised in chapter 8 when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And the apostles answer the same way uh, as is recorded here in this passage. They know someone Great is among them, someone who is able to perform miraculous signs. But as the unregenerate heart does, the confession, the speculation stops short of who Jesus really is. Someone raised from the dead, a man raised from the dead is quite frankly rather safe because it's still just a man. Might be a good man, might be a great man, might be a man who is at the pinnacle of an example of humanity, but it's still a man. And although today people will acknowledge Christ by his name, the same undergirding unbelief is behind the statements that say Jesus was a man Oh, yes, he was a good man. He was a great teacher, but he was just a man. And I'm sure you're just familiar with the argument, and I'll bring it to bear here just to remind us that if Jesus is who he said he is and spoke the words that he did, and of course he did, but to call him a good person, to call him a good man is completely contradictory because if he were only a man, then he would be a lying man. He said he was the Son of God. He said he was one with the Father. But unbelieving minds will always stop short of recognizing Christ for who he is, even in the face of very clear statements and proclamation. And that's what's happening as the disciples proclaim Christ. Herod is, is a conflicted man. If you hadn't picked that up and reading the passage, we'll just make it very clear. He is a very conflicted man. He hears of Jesus. We're given the speculations that were then floating around, and then we're told what it is that Herod latches on to. Verse 16, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod interprets Christ as a good man that he executed and then was raised with greater power than before. In other words, oh, now John is raised and can do miracles. Now, now why would Herod gravitate toward that answer about who Christ is? 
Well, as we unfold this passage, we find that Herod did not really want to put him to death. In fact, in verse 20, we're told that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. He heard him. He was perplexed when he heard him, but he heard him gladly. He, he was conflicted, and his ultimate execution was simply because Herod fell into the trap of his manipulative wife, Herodias. And so Herod had a guilty conscience about the execution of John the Baptist, and what better way to expiate one's guilt than to find out that the guy that I killed, he's back to life, and now he's even greater than he was before. Well, what a great thing that I killed him. What a great way to put a salve on a guilty conscience. The guilty conscience functions this way, doesn't it? Unregenerated, guilty souls seek expiation, the removal of guilt. They seek expiation apart from repentance. They seek a salve for their conscience apart from the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. And Herod's assumption that John the Baptist was raised from the dead, he's grasping at something that, yes, perhaps produces a little bit of fear, but also provides a salve for his guilty conscience without him having to turn away from his sin. The rest of the passage is going to show us that that's Herod's nature, He's interested in righteousness to a point. He's perplexed when he hears John, but he hears him gladly. He's interested in Christ to a point, but he still grasps his sin. He refuses to turn away from his sensual life of self-gratification. And so he finds this out. His conscience is agitated, who is this? Who is this that is preaching? There's someone that's greater. There's someone that can, that can heal. There's someone that can cast out demons. And, and his conscience is once again stirred up. But he goes into a direction that provides a salve, but no salvation. Preaching Christ agitates a guilt-ridden conscience. In the wrong direction that a guilt-ridden conscience will go apart from the regenerating work of Christ is to find some out, some form of expiation, some form of penance, something that they can do to expiate their guilt and yet still resist repentance, resist turning to the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation of sin. Some say that Herod was a Sadducee which makes his grasping at Christ's identity as John even more ridiculous. What do we know about Sadducees? Well, Sadducees dismiss the possibility of a resurrection. So in his desperation, he's even setting aside what could have been a core belief of his religious sect. 
Preaching Christ agitates guilt-ridden consciences. We noticed also in this passage that preaching Christ agitates morally compromised homes. Remember, preaching Christ disturbs sinners. It agitates guilt-ridden consciences, and it also agitates morally compromised homes. Look at verse uh, 17. After we've been told what Herod's interpretation of Christ is, we're told, given some background about what happened with John's beheading. It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, brother's, brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. This home is a mess. Herod married Herodias after having convinced her to leave Philip, to divorce Philip, which also meant that Herod had to divorce his first wife, who was a princess of a Nabataean king. The Nabataeans were uh, to the east of Israel, and this king was uh, Aratus, I believe. He had married Aratus' daughter for political reasons, because if you're married to the daughter of your closest uh, potential enemy, that might help keep things settled. And so that was his first marriage. But on a trip to Rome, where his brother Philip was, um, probably not the Philip who, who was a ruler um, in Galilee, this is one of the other sons of Herod the Great, who was a civilian in Rome, He went to Rome, he became infatuated with Herodias, who was one of his other brother's daughters as well, and convinced her to divorce Philip. He divorced Herodias' daughter, and Herodias and Herod were married. Herodias most likely had political uh, schemes in mind, I mean, Much better to be the wife of Herod the ruler than Philip the Roman civilian. So with her aspirations, she gladly left Philip and married Herod. So this this home is a weak, morally compromised home. Uh, The the dominating principle in this home is self-gratification. Everybody's in it for what they can get from the other person. And here comes John the Baptist preaching, preaching repentance. He causes a stir, even maybe creates some concern in Herod's house that an uprising will take place. And so likely both through the public proclamation of John the Baptist And in private conferences, 
John confronted Herod saying, that's wrong. Now, there were a lot of things that Herod was doing that was wrong in his rule, that were wrong. But again, notice that John, as a preacher of the gospel, he's not, he's not calling for some kind of societal revolution. He is calling people to personal repentance for their personal rebellion against God. And so when he confronts Herod, who again knows the law, knows the expectation, likely at least professes to be a Jew, John tells him it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What does John do as he preaches Christ, as he preaches repentance, as he prepares the way? Well, he applied one of the Ten Commandments to Herod and Herodias. You shall not commit adultery. And he made it really personal. This is God's law. This is God's design. And you are violating the law of God. You are in violation against your maker. It is not lawful for you to do this. And what we see is with John's ministry here is that declaring Christ involves preaching the law, declaring the character of God as revealed in his law to press home the guilt of sin and the need for Christ's redeeming work. You can't do what you're doing. It's sinful. You're violating the law of God. You're rebelling against God. And preaching Christ then calls sinners to repent, to receive cleansing from sin by faith alone in Christ alone. It eliminates the idea of any kinds of acts of penance that can compensate for wrongdoing. No, you can't do anything close to enough to compensate for your sin against God. And when that powerful preaching, when that call to repentance, when the pressing in of the law of God entered a home that was morally compromised, it agitated it. The proclaiming of the law of God will agitate morally compromised homes. It will begin to agitate people when there has been a covering for sin that is not of Christ. It will agitate people who are living hypocritical lives and projecting all is fine while at the same time cloaking their sin and refusing to turn to Christ in repentance. It will agitate homes where the dominating principle of that household is self-gratification. That's what Christ does. And it is a work of mercy It is a work of grace that that kind of preaching begins to agitate and bring conviction in morally compromised homes. And we see the response of Herodias. Verse 19, she had a grudge. And the idea is that an ongoing grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Herod wasn't convinced. Herod is he's, he's no angel by any means. He's completely committed to self-gratification. 
and he's caught in between the rock and hard place. But preaching of Christ will agitate more like compromised homes. We're going to come back to this in a moment, but I want to point out next, as we consider that preaching of Christ disturbs sinners, that preaching of Christ generates lethal opposition. Preaching of Christ generates lethal opposition. Look at, again, verse 19. Herodias wanted to put him to death. And that's the core, then, of what ultimately happens when she manipulates Herod through his self-gratifying principles and sets a trap to put John the Baptist to death. There's a purpose for Mark putting this passage in between the 12 going out and preaching Christ and coming in. Those following Christ have to grapple with the cost. To proclaim Christ and to follow Christ might indeed cost you your life. Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when people persecute you. It might not be to martyrdom, but you can anticipate persecution. You can anticipate opposition even to the point of lethal opposition. The apostles stirred up Herod's conscience because he had executed a proclaimer of righteousness. Folks, the world hates Christ, and the world will hate followers of Christ. Mark it down. The world hates Christ, and it will hate the followers of Christ. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. The world hates Christ, the world hates followers of Christ. Preaching Christ generates lethal opposition. We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when by the grace of God we are pursuing Christ, we're pursuing the preeminence of Christ, we're pursuing what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're pursuing to keep the church as the pillar and buttress of truth, and he defines that then by a statement of Christology. We should not be surprised that the bold preaching of Christ, the holding up of Christ crucified, the declaring that all things will be reconciled in Christ, calling men and women and children to repent, to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we should not be surprised that it generates powerful opposition. The response should be, praise God. Praise God, because the Lord said, blessed are you when people persecute you for that. And the prayer should be, Lord, may we, be, may we face opposition, though only for holding forth Christ. And keep us, keep us from wandering to any other rabbit trail. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing.
because preaching Christ disturbs sinners. The second main point this morning is that truth and self-gratification cannot coexist. Truth and self-gratification cannot coexist. We're going back into Herod's house now. He actually had two, one up in Galilee and then one on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. I think uh, the different commentaries that I read um, I would read one, and it would say it would, this banquet was taking place in Galilee. I'd read the other one, and it said it was taking place uh, down south, and it was back and forth like that. So in other words, nobody really knows. My personal opinion, for what it's worth, right, would be that this is taking place in one of Herod's house, in his house that's down south by the Dead Sea, because in that particular palace, One side was a palace and the other side was a prison. And so the account and the rapidity that which John's execution takes place would, I think, seem to indicate that this was actually happening down at that house. So we come back into Herod's house. What is Herod doing? Well, Herod is making an attempt to coddle his sensuality while saving the truth speaker, right? He's taken Herodias, his brother's wife. He's not willing to turn away from his own sensuality, from his own self-gratification. But at the same time, he finds John interesting, and he notes that John is a righteous man in his interactions with other men and a holy man. He knows that he's set apart by God to preach. He understands that to a point, and so he attempts to keep him safe. He's trying to keep truth-speaking and self-gratification under one roof. The conflict is evident. Herod must please his wife and will at the same time try to protect John from her malicious manipulations. James Edwards, in his commentary on Mark, captures well what is going on with Herod. He says, Antipas hopes to achieve an expedient end by doing a limited injustice. In other words, by taking John captive, that's his limited injustice. But like anyone who lives by such a philosophy, he can choose to do a limited act of injustice but he cannot determine the greater injustice to which it would lead. In colloquial terms, sin will take you further than you want to go, and it will cost you more than you want to pay every time. Edwards, again, quoting another commentator. Don't you love it when it's, you know, quote, 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 um, This man, T.S. Madison, makes a statement about Herodias' influence. Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could be safely written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. Herod understood that John was upright in his dealings with others. He was set apart for service to God, but... He lacked the moral backbone to do what was right. 
truth and self-gratification cannot coexist. What we have going on in this household is simply the ramifications from the fall all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And the consequences of that fall. Part of the consequences in Genesis chapter 3 that God proclaimed to Adam and Eve was the lack of harmony in the, rela- in the marriage relationship. A disruption of God's design for a husband to be a loving leader and a wife to be a submitted helpmeet to her husband. And throughout the records of Scripture, we find, we find this conflict of, of harsh husbands and manipulative wives over and over and over and over again. The consequences of sin go into the very depths of the home. We have a very few examples of, of truly uh, blessed marriages and, and examples of, of wise people. One of them is Abigail, who she had, she had a really rotten husband, but she attempted to stand and do what was right and, and help him even in the midst of his stubbornness. But this kind of conflict in the, in, in the, in the home it, it is simply the outflow of the sinful nature of the sinful fallen heart. And that leads us, does it not, to praise the Lord for His transforming power in the gospel? You know, as I think about uh, those, those who, who sit here before me this morning and just thinking about how the gospel transforms homes, from battlegrounds, which is what they are outside of Christ. The gospel transforms homes from battlegrounds to altars of self-sacrifice. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, as he, as he explains our overarching response to the gospel, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And where the gospel comes in, where the gospel penetrates lives and transforms people, then in the epistles we're told how, how homes are transformed to reflect Christ and his church as husbands lead in sacrificing themselves for the good of their wives, loving their wives as they love themselves, and wives submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ and become true helpmeets in, in the lives of their, of their husband and in ordering their homes for the glory of God. Folks, it's remarkable. It's remarkable how the gospel changes things. Apart from the gospel, our homes would be a Herod and Herodias home. But when the gospel comes, it transforms homes from battlegrounds to altars of self-sacrifice. And I can't leave that, that consideration without a word of exhortation and encouragement to our young people, young adults, teenagers, and even children who you marry is very important, very important. 
Do not minimize the importance of that decision. Seek counsel. Most of all, seek the Lord. And even from this point on, order your life according to the gospel of Christ, that you lay the foundation for a home that brings honor and glory to Christ. And very simply stated within the context of what we're talking about this morning, what that means is that you live a life not of self-gratification, but of self-sacrifice for the glory of God. That you learn to put aside your passions, that you learn to put aside your lusts and your desires and order your life, order your thoughts, order your words according to what you know pleases Christ. And you know what pleases Christ by reading His Word. Be, be devoted to the Word of God. Be devoted to Christ. Be devoted to honoring your parents. One of the... One of the best ways to to know that uh, someone is is pursuing Christ is to look at how they interact with their parents. Be someone who is devoted to honoring Christ by honoring your parents and allow the Lord by His grace to work in your life and to establish a foundation for a God-honoring home. You do not want a home like Herod and Herodias. It's awful. It's awful. And even more than that, when God transforms sinners, people who are dead in trespasses and sins, and He gives them life in Jesus Christ, and homes then are established on the basis of Christ and for the glory of God, homes ordered by God's design amplify the gospel. Our culture is filled with homes that look like the palace of Herod. When there are homes where people love the Lord and are self-sacrificing for one another and for the glory of God, that is an amplification of the gospel that this home is filled with people who have turned away from idols, like Paul talks tells the Thessalonians, who have turned away from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His appearing. Praise the Lord for God's design and for His work to amplify the gospel in homes where He is feared. Let me point out, too, that when we, when we think about truth and self-gratification, one of the destructive characteristics of false teachers is an attempt to reconcile sensual living with eternal life. That can't happen. And this is where John stands out as a model of being a preacher and, and teacher of truth. He refuses, he refuses to allow truth and self-gratification to coexist. He calls for repentance. But in Second Peter chapter 3, in 2 Peter chapter 3, as Peter is dealing with 
false teachers, listen to what he says or in, in identifying, warning the recipients about false teachers. In verse 14, I'm sorry, it's 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 14, part of his ongoing description, he says, "...they have eyes full of, of adultery, insatiable for sin." They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness." These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. One of the key characteristics of false teachers is an attempt to reconcile and even promote sensual, self-gratifying lifestyles with following Christ. And Peter says, look, that, that is like Balaam who said a lot of right things. Like God is not, not a man that he should lie. But in the end, it was Balaam who enticed the Israelites to immorality with the Moabites. That's the characteristic of false teachers. Immorality thrives in the wake of false teachers. And the church, a church where Christ is proclaimed and Christ is set forth, a church like that is a church that understands that righteousness and unrighteousness have nothing in common. This is the warning that Paul gives to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. The Corinthians are dealing with, with reduced affections for one another and reduced affections for Paul as a proclaimer of the truth. And Paul identifies it and says, look, this is why you're, you're making room for compromise with self-gratification. Self-gratification and truth cannot coexist. Cleanse yourselves. Turn to the Lord. The toleration of sensuality will strangle affection for the people of God. Herod tried to make it work out. It didn't. It can't. Jesus says in John chapter 3 and verses 19 through 21, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that, he, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is why truth and self-gratification cannot exist. It's like trying to mix light and darkness. It doesn't work. The light of truth will not coexist with the darkness of sensuality. The third point this morning then, 
It follows on the heels of our second. A commitment to self-gratification destroys. If truth and self-gratification cannot coexist, then a a commitment to self-gratification destroys. Or we could expand that statement and say, a commitment to self-gratification is a commitment to destruction. We come to the most distur- one of the most disturbing passages in the New Testament. In verse 21, we're told we, 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 the conflict has been set up, the attempt to make truth and self-gratification coexist in the same house. But in verse 21, we come to this banquet of death. An opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent out an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went out and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. There's no apology for reading this passage. It's an inspired account of the end of evil thinking. It's an inspired account of the end of what the fear of man looks like. It's an inspired account of the end of sensual living. And the account really requires very little explanation. Herod is simply on an egotistic, is, is an egotistical ruler who wants to show off to all the important people. He shows off his stepdaughter. And I can guarantee you it was not a Shirley Temple tap dance. He shows off his assumed power to give ridiculous gifts up to half his kingdom when in reality as a mere vassal of Rome, he couldn't give an acre if he wanted to. And he shows off how morally weak he is. A morally compromised man who has no courage even to step in to save the life of a righteous man. He is morally weak. He's made compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise. And now he has to, because of his weakness, his compromised character, he orders the execution of someone that he says he knows is a righteous and a holy man. Herod ordered the destruction of life. Ultimately, Herod later would be attacked by his former father-in-law, the Nabataean king, and would have been defeated had not Rome stepped in. In AD 39, Herod went to Rome because he coveted the desire, the, the title of king. The title that's used as King Herod here was just a popular title. He didn't have the official title from Rome, but his trip to Rome actually ended in his exile from Rome to Gaul. Herod was a completely destroyed man. He was embattled in his conscience 
with his guilt, and he ended up losing everything. A commitment to self-gratification is a commitment to destruction. It destroys. It destroys you. It destroys people around you. You have no courage to stand up for what is right. You have no courage to do what is right. You've committed yourself to destruction. James chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. A commitment to self-gratification is a commitment to destruction. Finally, we have hope, don't we? We have hope. Christ alone delivers from self-gratification. That's our fourth point this morning. Christ alone delivers from self-gratification. Again, if we're being honest, if we're allowing the Spirit of God to do its mighty work in our lives through the preaching of the Word of God, when we look at this account, we say, yeah, that's my heart. I am, I am prone to self-gratification. I am prone to sensuality, prone to wonder, Lord, am I. This account points to the death of Christ. Both John and Christ were innocent victims of self-centered, weak-willed politicians. But unlike John the Baptist's death, Christ's death was substitutionary. He died to deliver his people from their self-gratification that leads to death. The vilest forms of self-gratifying sensuality are completely cleansed for those in Christ. You might be sitting here and listening this morning and, and you've turned to the Lord Jesus and you turned to Christ from a life that was filled, dominated by self-gratification by the authority of the word of God, if you turn to Christ in repentance and faith for the forgiveness of your sins, you are cleansed entirely. You are seen by God as free from the guilt of sin. You are seen by God as clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is for by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of your own works. What a wonderful Savior. Turning to Christ brings complete cleansing once for all. You, as Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, you are washed, you are justified, you are sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Paul will say in Romans 8, and look, there is nothing, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. His cleansing is complete, it is sure. And you stand complete, complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the darkness of this world 
today needs the same thing as the darkness of the world in the first century. The darkness is just as thick. It's the proclamation of Christ to expose the horror of self-gratification and call sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. May the Lord give us His grace as those in Christ to hold forth the light of Christ, to be testimonies of His transforming power. And if there are any today who are listening and you, by the grace of God and the conviction of the Spirit of God, you, you've heard and you say, Herod is me. I'm entangled in the web of self-gratification, of sensuality. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Lord God, we thank you for your mercy to us in Christ. We thank you that you have given us your inspired scriptures to teach us what the end of our self-centered ways are, to hold forth examples of those who have been faithful to you and even died in your service. Lord, what a day it will be when We are gathered together in your presence and worshiping with such faithful people, but most importantly, when we are in your presence and behold your face. Lord, we pray that you would keep us faithful, that you would strengthen us for the task at hand for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.